Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 271, where we talk to Jesse Meekum from YNAB. So we really just want people's money to help them achieve what they really, really want. Not what you find on some Instagram scroll, but like what truly gets you moving. That's what money should help you do. And and that that hasn't gotten old for me. So I I still enjoy like podcasts like this. I still enjoy coming on and talking about it because it's uh, it's a message that I think everyone still needs to hear. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen. And with me, as always, is my all about the financial runway co-host, Scott Trench. I have a really good plain one, but I don't think it's going to land today. Ugh. Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else. To introduce you to every money story, because we truly believe financial freedom is attainable for everyone, no matter when or where you're starting. That's right. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big time investments in assets like real estate or start your own huge budgeting business, we'll help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so you can launch yourself towards those dreams. I'm super excited to talk to Jesse Meekum today, the Jesse Meekum from YNAB. If you don't have time, if you do have time, you can call it You Need a Budget. This is Jesse's company that he started in college because he needed a budget. I think his story is super fun and I'm so glad to share it today. It's always fascinating to hear the, the personal financial journeys of these, you know, uber successful entrepreneurs as well and, and how they think about money with that. And it's it's a lot it's often at odds with the way that we we handle it, you know, personally and, and with many of the folks that come and listen to our show. There are definitely some times where he says things in this episode, I'm like, what? But then he explains them. And they make more sense. Mm -hmm. And you will listen because I call him out or I say, thank you for explaining this because I'm listening for you, listeners, and I can hear you saying, what is he talking about? So I ask for clarification all for you. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Jesse Meekum from YNAB. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you today. I'm very glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right into it because we've got a lot of stuff to cover with you. Where does your journey with money begin? Well, I uh, I was thinking about this a little bit. My my dad, when I was 14, my dad gave me three books and he said, hey, you may want to read these. And I don't know why he thought 14 was the golden age or whatever for that, but uh, I, I would say that's where it began. He, he handed me The Richest Man in Babylon, 
and uh, he handed me The Millionaire Next Door and uh, Dave Ramsey's, I think it was, at the time it was just called Financial Peace. And so he gave me those three books and I, I read them and enjoyed them. So I, I really did enjoy the topic. Uh, and I just kind of took them as absolute truth gospel, like a 14 year old can where you have no other concerns or worries. And you just think, yeah, that sounds right to me. And there it was. So that was, I would probably say my first kind of foray into what, what some would call personal finance. And, uh, it's, I think it's been an influence for me ever since. Richest man in Babylon is a big book for a 14 year old. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's a fable. It's an easy read, but the, but the lessons there are, they still apply. There's nothing wrong with that book today. Uh, oh, it's my favorite book. Yeah. Yeah. It's, no, it's, it's excellent. But uh, yeah, the story, I was just like, okay, yeah, save, save a little. Okay. That makes sense. Don't spend everything you make. That makes sense. I, I remember when I was 16, I decided I would start to record everything I spent on a piece of, literally a piece of paper. I, I, there was nothing fancy about it. I don't think spreadsheets had been invented or I didn't know about them. And and uh, I remember just every day I would think back through the day and I would log what I had spent. And it was a it was a 16 year old's spending. So it was like a Jack in the Box and Taco Bell. I mean, there was nothing of consequence there. I would go on dates occasionally. And I realized um, as I tracked my spending, I noticed over the months that I was spending less and less and less. And I would actually drive by the Jack in the Box and not buy it because I didn't want to have to record it later on that evening. And so that was kind of my first experience that I'd kind of self-imposed where I just thought, oh, awareness of spending starts to influence spending. And that, that uh, is something that I still try and preach to this day. So what, what was your relationship with, like, with money like through high school and college? Were you able to accumulate a lot of wealth because of this habit or, or what did that look like for you? No, I wasn't able to accumulate any wealth really at all. It was, but I, I was able to avoid debt, which I think you could say that's a way of, of of accumulating some wealth, avoiding going backward is certainly not uh, the same as going forward, but it's something. And, um, for, for me and, um, my thinking, I just, I did not want to borrow any money for school. I had had those books that said debt was bad. And I thought all debt, like just no debt whatsoever. And so when, when, um, my wife and I married early, we were, uh, 22, I was 22. She was 21. We married very early. And we combined our very meager finances and I still had three years of school left to get an accounting degree. And she was just about wrapping up, but her degree was in social work where she was going to end up making 10 bucks an hour, full-time, fully degreed. It just, I mean, that wasn't where money is made. And uh, so we knew we would be pretty, things would be pretty tight, but I just, I knew I didn't want to borrow money to finish school. And that, knowing that that was the case, that we couldn't borrow that was kind of where the, the, that spurred me to think maybe I could find some other way to make some money and, and bridge this gap that we had. Um, and that was where YNAB was born. Um, but, um, my, my upbringing was, um, middle, middle class. My dad was an attorney, um, always kind of worked for himself. He wasn't a big hotshot attorney. He would, he would say he was a, almost begrudgingly did the attorney work. Um, but uh, you can't make money full-time in gardening, I don't think. So that, that would have been what he really wanted to do. But uh, he paid the bills. I never worried about money as a kid. I never, and, I, and that is a huge blessing. I never, uh, I never worried about, is there food in the fridge? Or, you know, is, are things going to be okay? I never had that worry. And that, that's a really big deal. Um, and so, but in that way, I just kind of grew up thinking money is, you know, we're safe. And we didn't have a lot of it, but we, we didn't scrape by either. And then look back, you realize, oh man, these things kind of started to form, you know, help me form my opinions and things. So did, did I hear that you, when you, you, you have three years left in your degree, you get married, yeah. um, your wife's making $10 an hour. Does she have any debt? No, she didn't either. She's just naturally frugal. My wife grew up, uh, I would say poor. Uh, she doesn't like to say that, but she also won't listen to this podcast. So it's totally okay. You know, um, <laughs> She, yeah, she grew up poor, um, mom as a school teacher, you know, a single mom, um, three kids that, that story in, uh, in rural Alabama. And so my wife's upbringing was one of, um, things just worked out, you know, they just worked out. And, um, because of, of that kind of this, uh, this idea that money was pretty hard to come by, I think she held on to it pretty tightly. 
And uh, she's naturally just wired to be pretty frugal. So when she came to the marriage, she had a little money saved. Um, I, I want to say it was over uh, over $1,000 or something saved up. And um, I had spent the last bit of my money on the ring to, to uh, get her to marry me. And so, yeah, we joined forces and had a little wedding money. It helped us buy, um, buy a computer and things like that. But yeah, it was tight. And our rent was 350 bucks a month though. So, um, you know, there, you can catch up on the expense side a little bit. So we were, we were just making ends meet, but we didn't know any different. And it, it was, we were going to make it work. And that was where the idea for YNAB kind of came in because we ended up wanting to have a baby fairly soon. And Julie wanted to be able to step out of the workforce and just focus on this new baby coming in. And that would mean we would lose her income. And I was working part-time for probably 10, 12 bucks an hour um, as an internal auditor. And I realized that we wouldn't be able to make it with her income leaving. And then mine being part-time and still trying to get through school, I realized we had to have some other solution. And so I thought maybe we, we could figure out a little side hustle, which we so did. So you founded the business while pursuing your accounting degree. Yeah, I founded it back in, uh, it was September of 2004. So it was a few months after the baby was born and I'd been working on it and then launched it. And uh, that was, we were off to the races from there. So when you say off to the races, what did those first few years look like uh, in founding the business and how, how, you know, this is, this is your income and it's your, your, your budgeting. Um, yes. I guess app that you're, <laughs> you're building with that. So what does that look like from your financial, personal financial journey? Yeah, it was um, at first, I mean, it was a bunch of nothing. It was not newsworthy at all. We, I mean, I, I don't know if people know this, but I originally started it by launching a spreadsheet and just selling people a, a little spreadsheet and I'd sell it for 1995 and you'd, you'd, buy it and you'd get a download link. And that was that. And it was just me. But about six months in, I realized that the spreadsheet kind of had, uh, it had rules built into it and, and kind of a way of thinking about your money that is uh, useful. And so I started selling people more on the way of thinking about the money and less on the spreadsheet. And I noticed that as I started selling people on how to think about the money, that sales increased and from, from very small to small. And and then I met a, a guy named Taylor, who's, who's now a part owner, and he was a developer. And he said, I could improve your spreadsheet. Let me help you do that. And I said, no, no, I don't want to keep improving the spreadsheet. I want real software. And so this was back in the days where you'd paste license keys into software and activate it and things like that. And, and so he and I, um, we hit it off. And, and um, I went to Julie and said, hey, you know, that money that we've been making from the business that we thought would be used for a house down payment. And you know, here we are in bigger pockets, so I can mention house down payments and things like that. It was, it was the whole plan. It was back in 06, 05. It was like crazy town where everyone thought if you don't buy a house now, you'll never afford one ever again. And so we were saving up for this house. And I went to Julie and said, Hey, instead of saving up for the house, um, with this money that this business is making, what if we paid this guy that lives in Austin, Texas to build software for us? And and she, she was, she was okay with it. She was, she said, you know, if you feel like it's a good, good idea, let's go for it. So we launched the real software in November of 06. And that was where things started to, to really move. Um, but I was working full time as an accountant at that time and, um, had my CPA license and I was thinking I'd be a, you know, a partner in a big accounting firm. So it wasn't until about a year after that, that I realized I would much rather run my own business and, uh, not do the 80 hour a week grind that was, was public accounting. So. Can, can, can you walk us through the, the way of thinking about your money that you had come up with or thought about? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we call it our four rules. It's the kind of the YNAB methodology and it's essentially rule one is that you give every dollar a job. You don't leave anyone unaccounted for as far as the dollars go. Um, we do that to, to have you feel scarcity. People don't like that word, but I love that word. I think it's the best word in the English language. You feel like things are scarce. And so you are more careful and thoughtful and purposeful with scarce resources. So when you're giving every dollar a job, you're, you're imposing scarcity upon your thinking and that makes your thinking better. That's rule one. Rule two is to embrace your true expenses. Meaning you want to look ahead, not just thinking about what you need right now, but like with you, Scott, it would be like, okay, I've got Scott here at the table, but I also have like future Scott to care about and think about. And so future Scott actually comes to the budgeting meeting and you guys talk about what you need as, as a pair. So future Scott's like, well, I want to have a new car in seven years. And, and current Scott's like, okay, we can make that happen. We'll set aside a little bit every month for this car or future Scott says, well, the roof will, will need to be replaced. So there's, there's a negotiation between the future version of you and you. 
And that is rule two, where you're looking ahead to those larger, less frequent expenses that the future you is concerned about. You break them up into monthly amounts. And now when you're giving every dollar a job, you're giving jobs for Scott now that wants to go out to sushi tonight and Scott in the future that wants to go on vacation, right? Um, so that's, that's the second rule. The third rule is to roll with the punches, we call it. And that means that you just, um, as needed, you change the budget. And I don't, can't believe it's a rule sometimes, but you really do just change your mind as needed. So uh, the last two years now, I was going to say year, but the last two years have told us that we should be flexible and be ready for things to change. And, uh, and that's an appropriate way to, uh, to approach budgeting. You're more like a coach making halftime adjustments than you are a fortune teller trying to predict the future. Exactly. Um, and then our final rule is to age your money. And it means we would get Scott to a point where the dollar that you earn today, you wouldn't need for 30, 40, 50 days. That, that dollar actually gets old as it sits in your wallet or sits in your bank account longer. So those four rules are really what make us unique. And then we just, our software is meant to serve those rules. The, the software is meant to help you just implement that and think hard about your money and make sure it does what you want. Can, can you give me an, um, more, more detail on what you mean by age your money? Yeah. So usually when someone earns a dollar, if they're living like 80% of Americans, they're paycheck to paycheck. And so they'll, they'll be paid on a Friday, let's say. And the next day they spend some of that money. That dollar is a day old. The day that it enters the system, it's essentially born, right? And it's just a metric for us to track how long a dollar lasts in your hands before it needs to go out and pay a bill or take you on vacation or do whatever it needs to do. And that length of time where you say, well, I earned a dollar today, but I won't need that dollar for 60 days. In that window of, of optionality is where all of the stress dissipates. When you're living on the financial edge, right on the edge, you don't have time to think. You don't have the option to choose one thing over another. Your hand is forced. And we try and get people to break the paycheck to paycheck cycle where they earn a dollar, they spend a dollar immediately. They have a pile of bills waiting for money. We try and flip that all around and have a pile of money waiting for bills to come along. So that, that's kind of the idea of aging your money. It's a metric that we created that the software tracks for. You can literally log into the software and it's like, oh, it's uh, 72 days, which basically means you look at how long a dollar lasts in your system and the software calculate, calculates it for you to be about 72 days or whatever it may be. But people can watch that climb and that's a good metric for them to recognize whether or not they are living close to the edge or not financially. One of the questions that I get all the time is where do you put your money while you're saving up? Uh, when you said embrace your true expenses, rule number two, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking that sounds like capital expenditures in real estate, the large mm -hmm. things that you don't normally buy, like a roof. You don't buy that every week. You buy it once every 25 years and it's $15,000. So as soon as you buy one, then you start saving up again for the next one. So that sound, that makes sense when in your context, but where do you put that money while you're saving for your own personal capital expenditures? Yeah. I like actually framing it that way. That's nice. Um, it, to each his own, I, I like to keep things very, very simple. And I don't like to have a lot of moving parts in my life anywhere. And one of the moving parts that I try to eliminate is multiple accounts. Uh, so when we are saving up for a new car, we just bought a new car recently. It, it's Julie's car. I should be clear. It's her car. I shouldn't, I can't say it's our car. It's totally hers, but it's her car. And we saved up for that car for 10 years. And that money sat in the checking account. It just, we would just build up right there. Thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, we, we keep our emergency fund. That's kind of a, you know, just a catch all gosh, did we forget something that sits in the checking account? Um, if savings accounts paid more money, I would be maybe inclined to sell a little bit of my simplicity for a little more money. But as it stands, um, the complexity isn't worth, isn't worth the, the trade-off for me. Others love to play that game. They love to maximize it. And that's totally okay. Um, just make sure that you're, you're aware of what the trade-offs are and the, the, the mechanics that you're kind of introducing into your system. When I run our budget, I'm dealing with one checking account and one credit card. And then all of the categories that all of the breakdowns of where things are going for the roof, for the property taxes, for whatever it may be, that's where I get my information to tell me 
what the money's supposed to do. I don't use any kind of physical account barrier to, um, to separate the jobs that, that dollars have. Okay. I can hear people listening to this show right now screaming, but you're not earning any interest. Yes, you're not very little maximizing. Interest. You're not optimizing anything. I want to say that's okay. Your job, especially when you're just starting out, your job is to make your finances easy for you so that you can continue on with the program. If you have all these complicated buckets and all of these convoluted things and you're like, oh, what was I supposed to do with that again? I can't remember. You're going to quit. And what you need to do is whatever works for you. And simplifying is what works for Jesse Meekum, the head of YNAB. You can simplify it too. We give you permission. Yeah. And, and I should say, I am a maximizer and an optimizer, but you just have to ask yourself what you are maximizing or optimizing. And, and that, and I'm not optimizing for dollars at that point. I'm optimizing for, I don't know, uh, less time spent clicking, you know, which is valuable to me. Mental headspace is, is valuable to me. So we're always optimizing. Hopefully you're always optimizing for something, but you want to be clear about what it is that you're looking for. Yeah. I just wanted to get that out. I'll say like the, you know, Jesse, 15 years ago, I would have optimized for the money because I found the money more valuable than the headspace. And, and that's totally, that's totally okay. Like it changes as your life changes. And when I'm 80, hopefully I'm optimizing for, I don't know, time with grandkids and not optimizing for anything close to money at that point. Right. So we're allowed to let it morph on us over time. I think that's totally appropriate and and good. So you, you said that the business began selling um, your subscription product in 2006 with the software. Is that right? Yeah. What, at yeah, what point the, did it become a full-time endeavor for you? Uh, 2000, uh, I, I dabbled in other things. Like I flipped websites for a while. I quit my accounting job in 2007 and then uh, went and worked for another company. That only lasted four months. They they were a uh, an internet marketing company that I just didn't jive with at all. But I was still very afraid of relying on my own income, my own business to to fund and support this little family. At the time, it was me and Julie and these two little boys. And um, I, in school, I had been taught great accounting, but I'd also been taught that um, owning your own business was very risky and, and that the safe thing was to work for someone else. And it took a long time, like several years of me earning quite a bit of money out uh, with YNAB and not living on it, always thinking, oh, that's going to disappear. It'll go up in a, in a cloud of smoke. And I just had to recognize after a while, it, I realized that the, you know, when you run your own business, not to sound too callous, but you are the last person you would fire, you know, and when you're an employee, you're, you're not. And, and it took me a while to like, kind of get that wiring right where it's thought, Hey, this isn't as risky as I was told, you know, to be able to run my own business. I can always Go and, and look for a job. I could always go and do that. I'm able-bodied. I'm smart. I'm a hard worker, blah, blah, blah. Um, but that it just took me a bit. So by the time I finally went in on it full-time, full focus, and dropped all of my other kind of like little side things, it was five years in after starting the spreadsheet that I did that. And um, some days I wish it were sooner, but you know it is what it is. And, and uh, I don't think I'd really rewrite anything. There were a lot of lessons along, you know, along the way that were learned. So what did what did the uh, trajectory? So so that was in two thousand nine that you start the you yeah. you went full time into into YNAB. Wow, two thousand nine in the middle yeah. of the financial disaster. You went. I mean, for us, it wasn't a disaster. We we uh, I noticed an uptick in September '08 where everything really went south. Right. Um, we noticed a little uptick. People were suddenly like, "Oh, my HELOC isn't going to save me." Uh, and bail me out again, like it had for the you know umpteen time, and people started caring about their money a little bit. So we saw a little bump up as far as uh, activity goes. At the time, we were a very, very, very small business. You know, a few employees, um, and that was it. So, it, but yeah, five years until I thought, okay, this is the thing, and I'm going to go all in on it. Absolutely, I di- I honestly didn't think too much about the macro timing of it. It felt right and good, and yeah. When when you went into your um, full time business and, and went and, and left left work, what? How did you think about your cash management? Did you have a month of cash on hand, a year, six months? How did you think about yeah. that? And did that influence your decision at all? I'm gonna. I hate sharing this part of the story because it makes me look like an idiot. But uh, 
when I when I jumped from my my accounting job, and I'll just tell everyone, I was making forty five grand a year. This was you know uh, two thousand six, and maybe that was good money back then. Doesn't sound great now, really. Uh, working eighty hours a week. If you do that math, you're like, hmm, there are other jobs, you know, that that probably pay better hourly. Um, but I was making forty five grand a year there, and had this kind of career path for my for myself. And then my side gig, I, with which was Wineab, I was working on from four to five a.m. every morning. A little more on Saturdays if I was lucky and didn't have to work. And um, that was making about that that year of oh six oh seven. I brought in about ninety grand in profit. Now it was just me at the time. There was no other employees. Um, my my now business partner was just moonlighting at the time. So it was. It was I, I was pretty flush as far as finances go. But to give you even more of, of you know insight, Julie and I were living off of eighty five percent of that forty five thousand dollars salary because I had told her I said, hey, we got to pretend that YNAB doesn't exist. We got to pretend that this is our salary and this is what we're going to use. So we were setting aside fifteen percent dutifully, like I learned in richest you know the richest man in Babylon. Fifteen percent goes to retirement. A penny saved is a penny earned. All that stuff. We were setting aside for that, living in a little apartment, and the YNAB money was again going back toward, okay, we're going to build up you know, for a house down payment, but we always treated it as if this, as if it was just going to disappear at any moment, and it was just my insane conservatism that did that. So we had a bit of a, of a war chest. Um, uh, gosh, I, I would venture to guess, I'm kind of spitballing Scott, but I'd venture to guess we probably had... Um, I mean, definitely more than six months of living expenses set aside. At that time, YNAB was was producing profits every month, so I I knew that we could we could live off of that. But but I also did take that job for a little bit of time because I was still just a little worried about relying on my own income. So I mean, you're talking about a guy that like tiptoed in and tested the water seventeen different ways before the finally jumping in and being like, oh, you know what? I did not have as much to worry about as I thought. Well, no, we, 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 I always ask that for folks that start businesses because I have noticed that there seems to be a tendency among a lot of successful entrepreneurs. It's not a rule, but, but for folks to build up a huge war chest before actually feeling comfortable making that transition and that leap. Yeah. And I think it's just interesting that, okay, for you to feel comfortable to move into your own business full time, you had to be making double the income that you were at your yeah. salary in one hour a day um, yeah. and have six months, maybe more, maybe a year or whatever it was in cash um, cushioning your, your, your position there in order to feel comfortable with taking that leap. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's just interesting. I've seen that. If we, we've seen that play out a lot of times, not all the time though, with a lot of entrepreneurs. I don't know to each his own. Right. And, uh, and I, there's no hard and fast rule there. I think I probably slowed down the business growth as a result of that, that uh, trying to play it so safe. But that's how I slept well every night. And, and so I'm, I'm okay with how that went. Let me ask you another question. In the early years following that, how did you deploy your cash? Uh, were you investing in other assets or building wealth in other ways with your personal wealth as, as YNAB was beginning to scale? Or what did that look like? Um, I, would, I would just pour it all back into YNAB over and over and over again. The pile would get bigger as it would come back because the business was growing. And I would just take that whole pile and just put it back in again. Occasionally, I would pull money out as a distribution and say, "Oh, I wanted to, uh, you know, when we bought uh, our house in 2008, horrible timing, but uh, we bought a house then, and I, that was when I took money out of the business to, um, you know, for the down payment on the house. Um, other than that, for for years and years, it was just kind of ad hoc um, pulling money out. But for the most part, it was always just all the chips go back on, all the chips go back on." Only in the last three, four years have I started to be more uh, methodical with pulling money out and de-risking in that way so that I don't feel like I'm just, you know, you can roll the dice at 26 and you don't feel the same as when you roll the dice at 41, you know, um, and that's how it's supposed to be, right? So I, I don't roll the same dice. I, I want to play it a little safer and um, again, always trying to sleep well at night, you know. No, absolutely. Thank you. I just, I think it's always important, you know, for folks listening, if there's thinking about starting a business, how does an entrepreneur think about their financial management for you? It's a, essentially a hundred percent in the business for 
a decade, it sounds yeah. like, um, before really beginning to diversify, you know, 15 years later. Yeah, I will say there was a time, I need to make sure that I'm careful on this. I mean, in 2012 and 13, I pulled money out to buy uh, some town, like brand new townhomes that uh, I, I just thought, well, this seems like a reasonable price. And I bought those and, and still have them to this day. Uh, and so that was a way of kind of de-risking there. I also would always maximize uh, mine and Julie's 401ks at the business. I would just kind of pretend that we were employees. And so we were fully maxing those. Um, never really thinking that YNAB itself was this growing asset. Always just kind of recognizing, oh, I'll pretend that that's not really a thing. And I'll just pretend that I'm an employee working here and I, I max out the 401ks. So we would do, we would do that. Um, and then that would, that was essentially it as far as, oh, and, and paying off the house. That was the other bit as far as wealth building goes, where I, I did want to have my house paid off very, very, very fast. And so I, I threw a lot of money in, you know, that direction. No, I mean, it makes sense. It's a picture, the picture I'm, I'm, I'm getting is, hey, let me ask you this. Do you, did you also have a conservative cash position during these years and, and grow that out? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, months and months and months of revenue. Uh, absolutely. And even like buying the, the real estate that I did, I mean, I would put half down and have tiny mortgages. And then as soon as I had paid off my house, then it was like, well, I should start paying off those mortgages. Like, I just, I've always operated from this standpoint of cash is the best thing you can possibly have. Cash is options. And uh, I would just want to have as much of it as is reasonable. And, um, and yeah, if you make a mistake with cash, you totally still survive. Uh, if you make a mistake with debt, eh, it's, that's going to be a, uh, that's going to be tougher. So I've always leaned that direction. Maybe it goes back to reading those books, you know, back when I was 14. And, and is your business entirely bootstrapped? It is. Yeah. We've never taken outside investment. Just, just me and Julie plowing it back in over and over again. I like that you focus on being able to sleep at night. And right now with this uh, new thing out called the internet, you can hear all about meme stocks and crypto. Have you heard about crypto? It's this oh, really yeah. great thing where you can make a trillion percent return <laughs> in like five minutes and that you can't lose is what everybody says. And then you see people losing all the time in crypto because it's not stable. And then somebody is talking about stable coins and I don't know anything about any of that. I choose not to invest in that because I don't know anything about it. I don't mm. want to do the research. I'm doing fine in the stock market. I would not be able to sleep if I took a significant chunk of my investments and or my net worth and stuck it into something I didn't understand. Yeah. So I like that you're focusing on things that you can understand and you're not going out on these crazy tangents and all of this like like FOMO is real. No, it's not. Miss out on some stuff. It's okay. It's okay yeah. to miss out on, you know, Bitcoin going to a billion if you don't understand it and don't want to invest in it, then don't. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, that's a tangent. I'm totally, I'm totally bullish on Bitcoin. I think like technologically, it's super fascinating. And if it does change the world, then it will change the world of all of the companies in the stock market as well. And, uh, and we'll ride that too. So, it, you know, if you ever are feeling like you're missing out on something, just write, make a list of all the things you've missed out on so far. It will be so long and, and make it exhaustive, you know, make it tell your hand hurts and you'll just realize like, oh, okay, I've missed out on far more than I have not. And you're okay. You know, I, we don't want any of that to drive investment decisions. I will say this though, Mindy, on, on the point around sleeping well at night, I, you know, reading all the books, you read uh, the four pillars of investing, you read intelligent and the intelligent investor, you read just on and on and you read about asset allocation and why that's so important and how your age kind of determines your risk tolerance. And this is all very standard stuff that you could like go onto a brokerage website and take a quiz and be told these things. So I, I thought in my, I was in my early thirties and I was allocated heavily into stocks and lightly into bonds as one quote unquote should be. And I realized about a year and a half into my 401k being allocated that way, that I was really uh, overly concerned with what the market was doing. And I would look at it and I would think about it and I would see it go up and down. And I realized that my risk tolerance as it relates to equities and bonds and and all of that was more like my great, like, like my grandmother's risk tolerance. Like I really didn't want to see it fluctuate a lot. I wanted it to be nice and stable. So, um, a little bit, almost like, like my man card was having a corner clip. That was the feeling I, I kind of have like this super irrational, emotional feeling. 
was just like, oh, I, I don't have like the chutzpah to be able to ride these big market swings. So I'm, I'm like 90, 10 bonds stocks and I'm 40. So that's pretty conserv, very conservative for someone my age. That being said, I realized that my biggest risk was the, was YNAB, the business. And I am heavily invested in that. So if you wanted to take the, the whole picture of my whole portfolio, I'm like 95% uh, in one stock called YNAB. And then 4% I'm in all these like tips and all these like really safe bonds. And then 1% I'm in the public equity market because that's, that's, that's just how my, my net worth is all broken down. A little bit of those townhomes or whatever in there. And, and I had to recognize that I'm taking real risk by running a single business. And I didn't want my, my uh, portfolio in the public kind of index invested boglehead style thing. I didn't want that to not be representative of the risk I was taking um, with, with the business. So just you got to make sure that everyone needs to make sure that they're looking at their whole portfolio and not just looking at like their brokerage account allocation or whatever that may be. If Hopefully that makes sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. And when you first said 90, 10 bonds, I'm like, what? Yeah. That, you're younger than me. 90, just, 10 bonds. I'm in 0% bonds, but I also own 0% of YNAB. If you'd like to change that, feel free. Um, I won't, I won't stop you, but uh, your, but when you explained it, then that makes more sense. So I can also hear people yelling at the the radio saying, what, 90% bonds? That's crazy. That's crazy if you're, all of your investments are 90% bonds. I like the way you explained that. So thank you for clarifying that. Because yeah, I was like, whoa, I don't necessarily and agree with that. To, to be fair, like let's say that I, let's say that it was just someone that didn't own any other business at all. And they really were 90-10, but they realized that 90-10 was what had them sleeping well at night. They will give up returns if, if his, you know, history is any kind of indicator. They will give up returns, but that may be okay. That may be okay. You really have to be introspective on what your personal risk tolerance is, truly. And I was finding through my angst that I wasn't respecting where my allocation actually was. And my emotional angst was basically surfacing for me, saying, oh, no, this needs to be different than it actually is. And, and, there you have it. So, I mean, I mean, to be clear though, like I, I buy Bitcoin every once in a while and, and that's totally money. I'm okay. Seeing go off in a, you know, vapor of smoke. That's totally fine. Um, but it's small enough that I would never lose any, you know, lose any sleep over it if it didn't go the way that one would hope it would go. So that I think is very important. If you're investing in these things that, that are new and is speculative and, and you put Jesse owns all of YNAB or most of YNAB. And if he puts a hundred dollars into Bitcoin and it goes to zero, Jesse isn't going to not be able to feed his family. He's not going to be able to not make his mortgage payments. That's very different than some of the people that I see talking about crypto that I just, I know they don't have a huge investment portfolio, but most of it or all of it is in yeah. this very unstable thing. That's my biggest problem with crypto. And yeah, I don't want to kick this dead horse anymore, but yeah, that I wanted to get though. that out. Yeah, that is, that is uh, my big problem. So, okay. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9-to-5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers an 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, get paid first. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of the physical asset provide additional security in case of borrower default. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by redirecting your funds from Wall Street to Main Street, supporting local economies, and generating profits simultaneously. This investment is reserved for accredited investors, but if you are not accredited, Pine Financial has options for you too. Don't miss this opportunity to back Main Street over Wall Street and start earning passive real estate income. Learn more about investing with Pine at pinefinancialgroup.com BP. That's pinefinancialgroup.com BP. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. What if I told you that I, Mindy Jensen, the queen of budgeting, the personal finance fanatic, sometimes forgot to cancel my subscriptions? I know, it's horrible. $10 here, $15 there. My useless subscription bills could have taken my whole family out to dinner multiple times. Rocket Money can make all that subscription sadness suddenly vanish. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. You can see all your subscriptions in one place and cancel money-sucking subscriptions with a tap. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. That's rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. Rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. Jesse, you mentioned um, while we were talking previously that that the rules that you have for budgeting could also be used to build a real estate business. Could you walk us through kind of how those might apply in, in, in a private business like real estate? Yeah, absolutely. We, I, I actually did this. I do this still with my with my tiny little real estate portfolio of uh, four properties, and they're all townhomes, and they're all managed by a, a, a property manager, and they're very hands off. Um, I, I bought them a long time ago and, um, I put to give everyone kind of an idea, I put 50% down, like I'd mentioned before, and then just slowly, I kind of snowballed the free cash flow that would be generated from all the properties into the property with the lowest, uh, or the uh, smallest mortgage balance. And then as that one paid off, I just kind of kept snowballing it. And now, um, they're all paid off free and clear and that's, that's how I like it. So, um, when I, when I manage those properties, I, I actually could use the software to build like essentially a P and L for each one. And so that you're not evaluating everything kind of in one big pile. So if you have more than a few properties, you probably have a sixth sense for which ones you like the most, which tenants you prefer, who doesn't call you the most, that kind of thing. But, um, you really want to have an idea of what your, what your profits are 
per property. And how I set that up in the software is I would just say, okay, each property is a, is a, a group, a category group. And it would be like, okay, my rent comes in, my property management fee goes out. Um, I would set aside a percentage for vacancy. I would set aside a percentage for repairs. And I'm building up, like Mindy mentioned, those CapEx uh, situations. I'm building up those repair funds for those individual properties. I'm saying, okay, this property address here, we're going to build up a little. And you're giving every dollar a job inside the confines of thinking about that property as kind of its own little unit. And then you would do that with the next one and the next one and the next one. They, It is a little cumbersome, but each one of the properties is its own LLC. It's its own bank account. You do those for obvious legal reasons. And YNAB then allows me to kind of see all of them at one at one glance. So I'm giving every dollar a job per property. I'm looking ahead toward what those expenditures may need to be per property. I'm adjusting when my property manager writes me and says, hey, the dishwasher went out. We went ahead and replaced it. It's going to be this much. I can adjust on the fly and say, okay, we need a little money here or there. And then I'm just letting money kind of accumulate in each of those accounts until it hits a threshold where I then say, okay, there's enough excess money there. I would, I'd pull it out into the, you know, what I call kind of our holding company, pull that money out there. But it allows me to see all the properties, P&Ls at a glance without needing to be um, diving into each one separately, if that makes sense. So it's, it's, um, I only do it quarterly because it's, it's pretty boring. You know, you have HOA fees and a few other things going out. It's not very exciting. Um, but I manage it quarterly and get a good beat on it. And then when it comes tax time, I can just export that all for the accountant. And, um, so far he hasn't said, Hey, uh, you know, this is horrible. So, um, I've liked how it's been going. So it, it's been nice to be able to see the the profits of each one separately and kind of know like, oh, this one works better for this or that reason. Um, mine are super simple, plain vanilla, but you can imagine if you were like flipping or repairing or anything like that, where this would be even more important to have really good job cost data per project, what you were doing, how much you were putting in and, and why not lets you do all that. So I, I think just because it's, people think that, you know, it's, it's not built specifically for, um, real estate, but it's built for cash flow management hundred percent. And, and in real estate, that is, that is your metric. So it actually has worked very well for me over the years. It, it may, I mean, honestly, I know people, other people who use it as well, um, for their real estate needs and, and, um, see, I'd be remiss if, if I didn't say that I think it could help others. I have a personal question. How much do you keep in your reserve fund, either for each property or as a group of four properties um, in terms of like monthly expenses? Yeah, um, I think I do six months rent is what okay. it is per, per property. Yeah. Per property. Okay. And then anything above that, I think once it gets above that, um, you know, I, I pull it out once or twice a year, I'll pull out any excess from there and and move it. And then I just go, I, I invest that money in, in, uh, you know, my, my very boring grandmother, you know, portfolio allocation. So it all kind of goes back to the same, same thing again, but yeah, that's the idea. Okay. I just wanted to point out Jesse Meekum, a budgeter extraordinaire keeps six months per property of reserve funds. I like to harp on this because I think that a lot of people don't keep enough in reserves and it's different if you have a really, high paying job where you're not spending every dollar that comes in, um, then you can kind of cash flow the expenses as they come mm -hmm. in. But if you're a paycheck to paycheck person or you don't have a huge personal reserve, you need to make sure that you can provide the housing that you are contractually obligated to provide by that legal document that you are hopefully signing with your tenants called a lease. So mm -hmm. I like to make sure that people are well-funded and I'm yeah, really glad last, that you were well-funded. <laughs> the last thing I want to do is, is to have to, you know, put in some of my own money and have money flow the wrong direction. It, that's con it's confusing. It's messy. Uh, there's nothing that I, I like about that at all. And the even more last thing you want to do is have to swipe a credit card because you don't have any oh, personal gosh. reserve fund or business reserve fund. And that's what it is. Real estate is a business. So like, don't even get me started. Okay. I'm, I'm noticing a tremendous amount of conservatism. Obviously you've, you've mentioned that in, in all these assets. What, what is the, um, do, do you use debt for any purpose in your life or business? Do you have it, for example, on, uh, on the business of YNAB to, to increase returns? Um, I've, I've only ever used debt to purchase, uh, 
homes. So I used uh, put 20% down for my personal residence back in the day, maybe 25, and then um, paid that off. And then uh, when I was purchasing these townhomes that we've talked about a few years later, and I purchased the, them over a, a period of, I think, two years, you know, it's kind of like every six months, um, I put half down. So I carried mortgages on those, but didn't have a personal mortgage at the time. And then um, we ended up selling our house and buying another house. And I got a mortgage on that one and then paid that off. Um, and then once the personal residence was paid off, I started working on the the uh, townhome mortgages. And those are now paid off. So um, I don't carry any debt at this time. I, I, if I saw an opportunity and the, the debt that was good, I'd probably get another mortgage. I mean, it's pretty darn reasonable. And... If it, you know, I, I kind of had to tell myself, well, if it's reasonable to buy your house with, with you know, a mortgage, then it's probably reasonable within the same rules to buy. You know, you pay off your own house, and then you're going to buy a rental with a mortgage. That sounds a lot like you having a mortgage. You know, so um, I just never wanted to leverage up so much that I felt like uh, the cash flow was in question. And so I was always looking for a, a smaller rate of potential return. But in exchange for that, um, a more, you know, a more guaranteed cash flow, essentially. And at the time, back in 2012, I was finding, you know, I found a few properties that did that. Now, I don't know if I would, you know, so it's a totally different ballgame. But um, not where you live. Yeah, not where I am. So and, and that and that and you know, here I sit not purchasing any real estate for the last little while. So um, it's probably a function of that of that fact that uh I don't look for returns from the leveraging part of the transaction. So what's a day in the life like? You have this financial fortress that you've constructed. Um, you're, you're a very successful entrepreneur with this. How does, what is that? What is the lifestyle? Oh, it's the same as it was 10 years ago. You know, it's, it's just, I have a lot of kids, so you can't, like I have seven kids. So you're like, okay, now I know what your life is like. You know, that's <laughs> the end of it. It's just, you're like, just imagine, you know, a total cacophony and then, um, turn up the volume and then, then you're about right. So, um, yeah, I just, uh, normal, you know, nothing special. We, um, we like to, uh, go on vacation with the kids. So that's where Julie and I splurge. That's kind of where we say, okay, this is worth, it's worth flying nine people somewhere. Um, you wonder if it's actually worth it sometimes, but we will do that. Um, but besides the travel once or twice a year, um, I enjoy being at home. I enjoy the day to day. You know, I, I enjoy, um, my kids, you know, and I do this thing called parlor time. I, I, I've I declared it parlor time and they're like, dad, what's, what does that even mean? I'm like, well, a parlor is like old school word for living room, I guess. And if you ever read like, um, you know, little house on the prairie or some book like that, there's like this romanticized idea of like, ma and pa and blah 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 and it's like super over the top um like this kind of farming romanticized thing and they all sit in the parlor and like ma knits and pa reads his newspaper and the kids are playing checkers or whatever they, they, you, i think i'm painting the right picture right and i like that i like parlor time with my kids where no one's going anywhere and we're all sitting in one room not necessarily talking or, or even like interacting with each other, but we're all present. Obviously no phones are allowed in that situation. And yeah, you can just kind of be and have it be slow for a little while. So a, an ideal life, you know, an ideal day for me would be a little bit of that parlor time mixed in there for sure. Nice and slow, nice and quiet. And the kids hopefully not at each other, you know, and uh, playing or whatever. Uh, that, that sounds like a good life to me. Awesome. And wh what's next for you? Oh, I don't know. I'm trying to get my golf game a little better. So, um, my son, one of my sons started getting into golf last year and I was like, ah, oh, maybe I should get into golf. And he's so much better at it than I am already. And it's very, very annoying, but I'd like to do that. Um, I'm, I like woodworking a lot, so I, I'm really bad at it, but I, I do enjoy it tremendously. So spending time out there with my hands, not in front of a computer screen is really nice. And then YNAB, um, I'm no longer CEO at YNAB. I stepped back from that back in uh, April of, of 21. And um, that's been fantastic. I've been able to focus more on things at YNAB that were more kind of what I was interested in. And uh, Todd, who's our CEO, is better at a lot of the things that I was not 
necessarily keen on doing, like a lot of the management stuff. So I'm focusing on getting YNAB into businesses where they can buy it for their employees and maybe have less stressed employees. So that's that's kind of a new thing on the business front that has me pretty excited. I wasn't aware that you were, had stepped back as the CEO. How much time are you spending working at your job? Oh, yeah, normal 40 hours or something. Okay. You know? You never track it really. When you're running your own thing, you're never kind of too cognizant of it. I mean, you never turn it off. You know, it's always it's always in the back of your mind. And um, I do wonder what it'd be like. I mean, I've been doing this for almost 20 years, and I do wonder what it'd be like to not have it in my mind at all because I don't know what that feels like anymore. I've forgotten what that was. Um, and but I I like what we do. I like um, I like helping people be more purposeful with their money. I mean, money, your, your money is just another representation of your, of your energy and all of your effort. And, you know, you spend all of this effort and you sacrifice time with your kids and partner and you get an education and you work so terribly hard to earn a dollar. And all I'm wanting people to do is just to respect that dollar a little bit and say, Hey, now that just that, just because that effort is now in the form of a dollar doesn't mean that we don't give it its due and say that we want to make sure that it it keeps um, it keeps realizing what you want out of life, and uh, so we really just want people's money to to help them achieve what they really really want, not what you find on some Instagram scroll, but like what truly gets you moving. That's what money should help you do, and um, and that that hasn't gotten old for me. So I I still enjoy like podcasts like this. I still enjoy coming on and talking about it because it's. Uh, it's a message that I think everyone still needs to hear. I completely agree. It never gets old for me either. Uh, okay, Jesse, this was a super fun show, but we're not done yet. We okay. still have our famous four questions. Are you ready? Now you're on the hot I, seat. I think so. Yeah, let's go for it. We'll see what happens. Okay. Out of all the books that you've ever read about money, what is your favorite finance book? I really liked uh, Your Money or Your Life. That way, And that, that kind of goes back to what I was just saying, right? I mean... It, we're not just talking about money. We're talking about all of your effort, all of your life that goes into it. So that one resonates with me pretty deeply. And Vicky's a very nice person. So I like supporting her as well. Awesome. We love that book and we, we love Vicky Robbins. So um, what was your biggest money mistake? Um, there was a time where, I mean, buying in 08, you know, that wasn't great. But um, the part that made it painful in 08 buying that house is we bought a house that was really great and nice and we loved it, but we couldn't afford any furniture for it because I had... Um, invested about 80 grand in software that I thought would be the next version of YNAB. And when my now business partner came on board full-time and stopped moonlighting, um, I had been kind of left to my own devices for a year um, while he figured out whether or not he wanted to come on full-time and he was working on just his own other stuff. And he came on board finally and he took one look at the code that we had been developing and I'd been paying for and it was garbage. And I kind of had known it but I hadn't pulled the trigger and I hadn't pulled the plug on it. Um, so yeah, we, we completely scrapped $80,000 worth of, of lousy software. And I had to go home and tell Julia what we had done. And my, my uh, voice echoed in our house because it was empty of furniture. And I just thought, you know, 80 grand would buy a lot of furniture. I don't shop around for furniture ever, but I'm guessing we could have furnished a couple rooms with that money. So that was kind of, that, that one hurt. Um, you know, I'm glad we got rid of the software. I'm glad I didn't let bad money follow bad money, you know, but, or good money follow bad money, I guess. But, um, that one still kind of haunts me a little. That one's hard to, to do. I mean, you're not a programmer, so you're like, oh, okay, it'll be, yeah, it'll, like it'll I, work. It'll I kept work. lying to myself. I kept being like, oh, okay, I guess that, I guess that makes sense. But no, it needs to make sense to you. Like you're, you're cutting the checks, you know? Yeah. I okay. could go on for 20 minutes on that one, but we this is a lightning round kind of a thing, so we won't, we won't do that. Well, you're the only person who's ever paid for bad software, so sorry yeah. about that. <laughs> what is your best piece of advice for people who are just starting out? Oh, man. I mean, this one's a gimme because I would just say, well, you need a budget. <laughs> um, but budgeting is not what people think it is. Budgeting is just planning. It's just It's just money doing what you want it to do. And that's it. It's just your. It's just you deciding what you want your money to do. That's a budget. It can move. It can be flexible. It will get you all of your dreams. As uh, one of our support reps, Kat, says to her kids, she says, "You can have anything 
that you want. You just can't have everything. And that's, that's what a budget does for you. It lets you prioritize and decide, you know, what's most important to me. So work with it, you know, and, um, get really clear on what you really want out of life and then see if money can maybe help you get there. Love it. Track your spending, make it, uh, have it go where you want it to go. Yeah, absolutely. That's our most, uh, uh, if you're listening to the show, that's the most common advice we get. Um, when we ask this question, I think it's for a reason. It's the most powerful. Yeah. I just see, what is your favorite joke to tell at parties? Oh man. Or at parlor time. Parlor time. Yes. My kids like the one because I'm not much of a swear and like, I don't swear at all, you know? So they like the one where I, I tell where I say, what did the fish say when it ran into a wall? Damn. And the kids love that mainly because they're like, oh my gosh, dad just swore, you know? So that one's, <laughs> that one's a good one. But <clears throat> I like the one where this, uh, there's a guy that goes to prison, not happy about that, but he goes to prison. He's with his inmate, you know, his other like cellmate, bunkmate or whatever. And the first night he's there, someone just yells out 22 and everyone starts laughing. And he's like, well, that was pretty random. And then a few minutes later, someone yells out 14 and people start laughing even more and you can hear it up and down the, the cell block. So he said to his bunkmate, he's like, what, what's with the numbers and the laughing? And he's like, oh, we, we've been in here for so long and we got tired of telling all the same jokes. We just numbered them. So now we just say the number and it's a lot more efficient and quick that way, you know? <laughs> so he's like, oh, I guess that makes, that makes pretty good sense. And so, and then a little while later, one of the, you know, he hears someone yell out 31 and like crickets, nobody laughs or anything. And, and the new guy's like to his cellmate, he's like, what's, what's the deal with that? And. The guy's like, well, I don't know. I mean, some people just don't know how to tell jokes. <laughs> yeah. I like that. That was one. a good one. That's, I like that, that one a lot. That one's from my dad. My dad's full of lawyer jokes and that joke. So um, it was a good one. I love it. That's awesome. Okay, Jesse, where can people find out more about you? So you can, uh, I mean, I'm on a podcast as well and, and excited to have you all on our podcast. But that's at, uh, you know, YNAB or You Need a Budget. You can find me there. I'm not on any of the socials or anything like that. But if you want to reach me directly, uh, you can email me at jesse at wineab.com and I'm happy to respond there. Um, but yeah, that's it. And if you're curious at all about the software or what we teach or taking a class from us, just go to unionabudget.com and we will, we will help people. We have an army of people that have been through changing their mindset with money and now love to help people change their mindset. And so I'd love to have people join us there as well. And it's spelled out, you need a budget.com. Yeah, or you can do wineapp.com. We own the we own the four letter one as well if you're in a hurry. So <laughs> yeah. thank you so much for joining us today and telling your, your sharing your money story and a little bit about um about Wineab. Um uh, I think it's a great product and and um you built a really cool business there. So congratulations and thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jesse. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye bye. Okay, that was Jesse Meekum from YNAB or You Need a Budget. Scott, what did you think of his story? I, I always, again, I think it's always fascinating hearing from successful entrepreneurs about how they they manage their money and and I've noticed again not not it's not a universal thing but it seems to be a trend that there's a lar large emphasis on a stable cash position there's a large uh, amount there's a much less risk taking in their personal investing because they've got this very large. Uh, financial asset in their business that they run with that. And that is the aggressive part of their portfolio. And so I just think that's, that's very interesting and, and it's worth learning from. Yeah. When he said he's 90, 10 in bonds, I was like, well, what? But then he explained that the bulk of his investment is in one stock, YNAB. Okay. That makes sense because I don't own a company. I'm not thinking like that. And when he first threw out there, I'm 90-10 in bonds. I'm like, whoa, we need to talk. When you have a good reason for what you're doing, I think that's the most important. And ultimately, you have to be able to sleep at night. Yeah. So I, I, I think he's got a very effective approach to personal finance. I mean, how could you possibly argue with that? Um, he's, he, he might be the most successful, um, uh, uh, personal finance person we've ever had on the bigger pockets money podcast. So, um, very, very fun to hear from him and, and, and really learn from his approach and the way he thinks about the world. Yeah. His four rules. I really like those. Give every dollar a job, embrace your true expenses, roll with the punches and age your money. I think those are great. And I'm really glad that he had the opportunity to share with us today. Okay, Scott, should we get out of here? Let's do it. 
from episode 271 of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. He is Scott Trench, and I am Indy Jensen saying, off we go into the wild blue yonder. The market is changing, and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom, and the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into real estate investing or take it to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With the BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and boom, instantly matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.